Every year in the U.S., 10, roughly 10 billion land animals are killed for food. And many people would assume that that is the largest number of animals of any industry. The reality is in the U.S., 50 billion animals from the sea are killed for food just for consumption in the U.S. And the, and the rate at which we consume fish is much lower than in other countries. So why is that? That is David Benziquin. And this is the Veg Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Davey. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and for hanging around. I did miss last week's episode due to my preparation for the run I did in Central Park. I'm happy to say that I completed the 18 miles in under three hours, which was my aim, and now I'm looking to improve and continue the training in the weeks to come, hopefully one day getting a marathon under my belt. So on this week's episode, I was lucky enough to get some time with the CEO of Ocean Hugger Foods and also Plant-Based Solutions, David Benziquen. Over the past couple of decades, David has evolved from a young vegetarian at the family dinner table to a CEO reshaping our food industry. I hope you enjoy the podcast and I promise you'll hear more about the problems with today's fishing industry and how David's company is providing a delicious solution. All right, man. Everyone, I'm here today with David Benziquen. Do I, I pronounce it correctly? That's perfect. David Benziquen, the CEO of both Plant-Based Solutions and Ocean Hugger Foods. And we're here in Baltimore today after a big day for David at Expo East. I unfortunately do not have a ticket myself. I'd love to go in and, and check it all, all out and uh, roam the floor and grab all the all the all the good stuff on offer. But yeah, David, welcome to the podcast and thank you great so much to have for you. having me. No, cheers. Thank you for for giving up the time today. So yeah, David, I mean, you've had a really interesting career to date in the plant based world, really. Um, and it sounds like it's evolved from, you know, days in in the non profit sector now into you know, helping helping companies in the for-profit sector. But before we get into where you are at today and, and all that, I'd love to go back a bit and just understand, you know, how it all came to be. Like, everyone has their own story, you know, what triggered them, what got them down that that road, what opened up the, the eyes to, um, yes, I suppose seeing the world for what it really is and, and then making changes based on what you've witnessed. Yeah. So again, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, the first thing that opened my eyes was at the age of seven, I went on a corporate fishing trip trip with my father's company. And I, at a time, thought, luckily, caught a fish. And as they reeled the catfish that I had caught in, I saw the fish had a hook through the eye. And I saw the fish's blood. I'm not saying this to be disturbing, but it struck me that the fish was bleeding. And I was seven years old, and I think at that age, I hadn't yet made the connection and understood that the animals we eat are the just like the animals we love and just like ourselves. And it really struck me. And I was very disturbed by the experience. I never went fishing again, of course. But when I spoke to my family about it or to others about it, as is so common, I was convinced by others that 
you know, I was misunderstanding it. I wasn't old enough to understand that it wasn't the same thing. That the animals we eat aren't like that. And so I continued to eat animals. Then at 14 years old, uh, I was with some other folks and they were cooking crabs. And one of them jumped out of the pot while being boiled alive and started trying to escape. And one of the people I was with chased after the crab with a hammer uh, to, to attempt to catch it and kill it. And I watched this crab look up and literally sidestep away from the hammer-wielding man multiple times before unfortunately being killed. And that I was now old enough to really understand the connection and to relate to this animal who was just trying to survive. And so that day I did not eat the crab. The next day somebody served me chicken and I looked down at my plate and I had the same realization and I went vegetarian right then at 14. Over the next few years in high school, I became very passionate about a range of social issues from uh, women's health and rights and environmentalism and social justice in general. And I learned more about animals. And by the time I got to college, I was looking for where I could have the greatest impact. And so the first day of school, August 19, 2002, I was going to all of the student club fair uh, tables. And I was looking for all the activist clubs, for the environmental club, for the anti-death penalty club, this and that. And I was asking them what I would do if I joined their group. And each of them would say, oh, you'll sign petitions, we'll go to protests, et cetera, et cetera. But most of them, I thought, were very challenging to solve. It's not that I didn't believe in them, but, you know, when the anti-death penalty club said, we'll write letters to President Bush to tell him to stop executing people, and I knew that he'd executed more people than any person in history as a governor, it didn't seem very realistic or effective to me. When I stopped by the animal rights club, the woman who was leading the club and was at the table said to me, are you vegan? And I said, no. She said, we'll help you go vegan. You'll save 100 lives for the rest every single year for the rest of your life. And then every single other person that you help us move in that direction will save countless more. Your impact is exponential and it starts today. Wow. Sold. Sold. My eyes were opened and there's nothing a young person wants more than to realize they are empowered and can make such a difference. So that was my epiphany. And from then on, I got very involved in that organization and started interning at every animal protection group you could think of and eventually went to work for them. And that's how my journey started. That's awesome. That's pretty amazing that at 14, you've had that realization yourself. I think a lot of us get exposed to the same things that you've been exposed to yourself, fishing trips, um, you know, seeing live crabs or lobster boiled in a pot knowing they get boiled in a pot alive um, and then the rest of it, you know. Well, I suppose we're all exposed to that to some extent unless you grow up vegetarian or you grow up in a vegan family. Uh, so at 14, to have that connection, to act on it and to want to progress, I think is is pretty cool. How did your family feel at that time? So, you know... Because for me as a 14-year-old, really whatever mum and dad put on the plate, mm -hmm. no questions asked. I was happy to eat it. Didn't make the connection myself for you know at least another decade after that. What was it like being in the family situation and just you know saying, I don't want to eat that? So it was a mixed bag. On the one hand, very positive, they did not try to stop me. And they did not try to dissuade me from doing it. Uh, they had concerns about my health. And they wanted to make sure that I ate well. They were very supportive about making sure food was available. Fortunately, I grew up in a European household 
where dinner every single night was not only um, made at home and a family event, but also it was relatively healthy. We always had salad. We always had fruit for dessert primarily. Um, and we always had, you know, some kind of lean protein and starch or grain. So it wasn't having to overcome a fast food culture as a start. And I was exposed to a lot of fruits and vegetables and legumes and beans and grains and everything else. And that certainly helped to realize that the spread of food would not have to be so narrow. The other thing that having those family dinners was so important for is that as a young person, when I'd go to friends' houses, they'd be eating microwavable cheeseburgers in front of the TV. And they did not make that human connection with their families. They did not develop emotionally and socially, and they did not understand their food and where it came from and the labor that went into it. I had a different experience. I understood the connection between health and food. And every single night I sat down at a table where I was grateful for my mother making food that we could all enjoy and where I was expected to contribute to the conversation, to share my feelings about how my day was and grow socially, emotionally that way, to discuss my opinions on the world. And so I really developed a backbone, uh, an identity and uh, a set of values around family dinners. And I really love that uh, experience. I hope to raise my son the same way where he can really appreciate that whole cycle. I was also expected to do the dishes or contribute somehow. So it was really important. Um, they didn't quite get the vegetarian thing and none of them were vegetarian at the time. And so one thing they did say was they wanted me to contribute to cooking so that I wasn't making them do all the labor, which I totally appreciated and understood. The one thing was the options for replacing animal proteins at the time were not what they are today. So, you know, when I made a grilled cheese, it meant sticking a block of kind of gelatinous soy cheese in a pot and kind of melting it down somewhat and then putting it on a piece of bread and smushing the bread together to make grilled cheese. We've come a long way since then. So I'm thrilled to see the progress and proud to be part of it, getting to work with so many incredible companies to do that. Again, really cool. Yeah, and I didn't have to go through that that early cheese phase, which I hear wasn't the best. From, true. from people that have been around the block for a, a little longer than myself. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, growing up, I've heard things from other guests like like yourself, big family kind of events at the dinner table or they're in the garden as young kids. Uh, these little things that might seem quite inconsequential actually really shape our relationship with food and relationship with conversation other people from such an early age and you can really develop you know pretty healthy relationships with food uh, other people from you know regular daily activities you don't really have to go through any kind of course to to learn these things it can it can all happen uh, in the in the family household and i think that what we've what we forget to realize what we what we forget to understand is that the modern food system has really only been in place since the 50s. You know, for millennia, we have eaten based on gathering first, somewhat hunting at certain times in, in history, but mostly through gathering and through low-scale agriculture and mostly subsistence agriculture and growing things that we needed for our own communities or families, eating a largely, if not entirely, plant-based diet because most of the world, A, cannot afford meat, B, did not understand the need to hunt or uh, grow so much. And so that was the majority of the diet. And the experience around food was one where 
a significant part of your day in life was making food, growing food, finding food in order to survive. As we've commoditized our entire lives, and with the end of the war effort after World War II, we were left with all of this industrialized labor and equipment that couldn't go to good use. And so in order to keep the economy going, we started commoditizing food for convenience so that we could work more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And the appreciation of where food comes from, how it's made, what it's from got lost. Today, if you ask most people, would they be willing to go out in the wild and kill their own animal to eat? Most would say no. And what I ask of people is put aside the political label of vegan or this or that, whatever. Start to eat conscientiously. Think about your part in that food cycle, in the animal's life, in the farmer's life, in the sustainability of the planet and what it's contributing. And then at least own your uh, choice and understand it better. For sure. So where it went wrong, really that era, the 50s, the convenience, I think I've referred it, referred to it before as kind of like the age of the TV dinner where it, you know, people get this packaged food where they can just heat up and, you know, chuck on the TV. The TV was new back then, so it would have been exciting, I'm assuming. And the the relationship with health, food, what we put in our body, our fuel, just kind of went out the window really quickly. And it scaled aggressively since then. Uh, and you're right, now we're, we're at the point where we're so... Uh, detached from our own food system. We're not thinking about the neat package in the in the supermarket that we're picking off the shelf and then putting on the fry pan and then uh, eating once we get home. So, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more uh, on the, the, the evolution side of things there. And it's really recent when you, you, you know, when you do unplug it all, it's, it's, it's really only happened in the last uh, 50, 60 years. So you mentioned before that after college, you're working for nonprofits and you're getting into these nonprofits. What type of companies were you working for and what kind of work were you doing for them? So my work was with different animal protection organizations, largely around farm animal protection and actually uh, fish protection. And the work was for most of those years in advocacy. So I worked both on uh, organizing volunteer activists, uh, community members to do everything from policy advocacy to community advocacy with engaging with corporations to change their practices or increase plant-based options, things of that nature. And as an individual, I also became a lobbyist and led a lot of efforts to pass ballot initiatives and pass legislation at the local, state, and federal level to improve how animals were treated or to encourage increasing access to plant-based foods altogether. Uh, it was work that I was really proud of and really enjoyed, and I was surrounded by so many heroes and mentors who have helped bring me and my journey not only to be involved in animal advocacy and change, but also to do some more effectively. Because I evolved from somebody who, when my eyes were first opened to the suffering that the animals went through, as is true for so many, it's so upsetting to see. And my first reaction was to get angry. But what you learn about folks who are embracing these decisions is that so often they're coming from a place of incredible empathy and sensitivity. And if they have that kind of compassion and 
that is that triggers anger when they're so crushed at the realization of what is going on that anger being projected to others is not an actual manifestation of who they are as people it's a response to pain and if we can help them get past that like people helped me get past that to take a breath allow ourselves to accept the past and not blame ourselves for decisions we made when we didn't know any better and to not blame others but to help them along their journeys in a compassionate way and to appreciate the little victories it's a whole new way of living so working at places like farm sanctuary where i was for five years where i was you know working with gene bauer and some other real heroes i saw what it meant to be compassionate not only for animals but for people and what that means in our effectiveness people respond to being supported, encouraged, and loved, not to being judged, hated, and uh, to feel threatened by the world and their role in it. And that's really what led me to the work I do today. I don't know if you wanted to jump into that already. Let's let's go into that. So you, you've seen what it's like in the nonprofit world, the advocacy world, um, and I'm you know from what you've just said, you've started to understand more the, the the social acceptance of, of people, the psychology of people, what they like, how they do feel nurtured, so on and so forth. And maybe some of those traditional practices don't do that so well. Uh, and you were just going to go into what you're doing now and how you can really help those people that aren't vegan, the, you know, the, the, I don't know, the flexitarians, the vegetarians, the, the completely non-vegan people, how do we encourage them to eat more plant-based foods? Absolutely. So my work, as I was surrounded by all these people who were teaching me about how to be more effective by being approachable, by meeting people where they're at, led me to start thinking about the efficacy of the work I was doing and actually starting to measure it. And so I wanted to start measuring what kind of impact were we having when we were doing vegetarian leafleting or other things? How many people were changing their lifestyles because of that work? And I, and I want to emphasize that I think the work is extremely important. I think education and advocacy, having information out there is a, is a very important piece of the puzzle, but it is one. And when I came out of school, anybody who wanted to save farm animals felt that the only path was to go into these nonprofits, of which there were few jobs, they were low-paying, and it was solving one piece of the puzzle, education and advocacy. What I came to find was that there was a small number of people, there were a small number of people who were making choices like I had and like others had to change their lives based on that information they were receiving. But for a lot, they weren't or they weren't sticking with it or they weren't doing it as fully or for as long as we would like. And I started reading about consumer psychology and trying to understand what led to behavior change and behavior modification among people. And the tipping point for me was I heard a speech by a guy named Jeff Dunn. And Jeff Dunn was the former CEO of Coca-Cola North America. And he left a number of years ago, and he gave a speech where he said, I just got fed up with selling sugar and fairy dust, and I can't accept what I was doing anymore. And he went to a company called Bolthouse Farms. And Bolthouse Farms at the time was known for selling juices and smoothies. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he approached them and he said, I'd like to work with you. I'd like to become your new CEO. I'll bring you a bunch of money and we'll help make this company very successful, but only if we're selling produce. 
And they said, we are, we're selling juices. What do you mean produce? We're, that's exactly what we're doing. And he said, no, 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 not juices and smoothies that are stripped of fiber and, you know, or just basically sugar water with little fruit in them. He said, I want us to sell whole fruits and vegetables. And they said to him, how do you brand fruits and vegetables? They're a commodity product. Nobody thinks differently about them. He said, absolutely, we can sell whole fruits and vegetables the same way you would sell chips or soda or anything else. And so he developed a campaign called Eat Them Like Junk Food. And he took baby carrots and he put them in real funky packaging, one that was targeted to kids with cartoon characters and bright colors, one that was a little bit more feminine with, you know, um, a, a very light colors and very pretty packaging and one that was super masculine and macho and whatever, red and black. And he showed that putting vending machines in schools with this very loud, bold, fun, kid-friendly branding and doing these advertisements where a guy would be shooting baby carrots with a machine gun into the mouth of some snowboarder or you know whatever it was, he was able to make a dramatic difference in how young people who were primarily uh, most vulnerable for diabetes, cancer, and obesity, which are leading um, results of meat-eating, were able to change not only their diets, but their perceptions of those very foods. The kids they interviewed and took focus groups with actually started to believe that the carrots tasted better than they used to, and that they were cheaper than they used to be, and they were cooler than they used to be. And nothing had changed but the packaging and the messaging. And that shocked me. I realized that people respond to being offered solutions, not to being told what the problem is. And that led to my founding plant-based solutions. So plant-based solutions is a brand management agency for plant-based consumer products. We do branding, marketing, strategy, fundraising, operations, and product development to develop, launch, and scale vegan products. And the whole mission is that we are making the greatest products as solutions available, accessible, and affordable to the community. And through that, we achieve the mission that we all want to protect the planet, save the animals, and improve our health from the perspective of giving people what they want that is delicious, affordable, accessible, attractive, and not just telling them what to do, but saying, try this. Isn't it delicious? Great. By the way, it also has this great benefit. And bringing them to the table by giving them something they want rather than by telling them why they need to change what's on their table. Got it. Going all the way back to where we first started there, I'm completely with you on the advocacy side of things. It's a piece of the puzzle that's growing stronger and stronger, you know, month by month, uh, year by year. You can look at the animal rights march as an example of that. Uh, it's growing exponentially and it's so, so important. But as you said, it's one piece of the puzzle. We need all pieces, the documentaries, the solution companies like your own, uh, to the food companies themselves that you're working with to produce the products that we're going to eat to start taking up market share so the demand is greater. So it's really a multi-angled approach that we're taking and each part is as important as the other because everyone's going to resonate with a different message. So if we're taking care of all of those messages in a really professional way, we're going to hit a wider range, wider target. More people are going to start opening their eyes and you know minds to, to what's out there. So with your company, Plant-Based Solutions, in 2012, so you know we're talking six years ago, a lot's even happened in the last two years. 
you know, I've been vegan myself for two and a half years and the change that we've seen, the options that have become available in two and a half years is phenomenal. It's, it's growing so quickly. Give us a snapshot of what the landscape was like back in 2012. So I was very privileged that the time I launched this company at a time when everybody thought I was nuts to think that I could create a business services consultancy entirely around uh, this market, which was so niche at the time, it was around the same time that all these incredibly exceptional, soon-to-boom plant-based companies were starting. So among our first clients were companies that were not even known back then, but eventually grew huge, like Gardein and Dea. We helped launch Tree Line Cheese and a lot of these products that ended up being extraordinarily successful and have been at the cutting edge of the newest technologies and the newest offerings in protein alternatives from the plant-based side. And that allowed us to work with incredible companies from day one. The change has been dramatic. Just before I launched the company, I remember getting my first sample pack of Dea cheese and melting it and realizing this was very different from the stuff I used to stick in a pot. And since then, we've seen unbelievable growth from consumer demand because of the huge growth in flexitarianism for people who are looking to eat more healthfully and more sustainably to the amount of capital that is now coming into the space, all the investors that are coming in, all of the large companies that are realizing they're losing market share because consumers are waking up and they're looking for these products. Now you have all the big companies themselves trying to acquire or invest in companies like the ones we're talking about. And it's been a huge change. It's been very exciting and it's not going anywhere. No, you'd be, I think you'd have your head in the sand if you really think this is going to get slowed down, reversed, you know, it's really either jump on board or you could find yourself in trouble. Like a business case would be like the Kodak versus Canon kind of thing, right? I'm sure you hear that a lot. Kodak didn't go digital, they didn't run with it and then they, you know, completely lost market share and and got left behind. So we've got a company like Tyson Foods as an example. I'm not going to say that I agree with the majority of what they do. Like I, you know, I can't stand up and say that I'm going to agree with that, but to see them take the initiative to invest in a plant-based company like Beyond Meat, for example, and to they've been quite public about it, which I don't know what their competitors in the meat industry, the animal agriculture industry think. I don't know why they're not acting themselves after hearing this, but do you want to give a little bit of background of what you think is happening here, that the landscape's definitely shifting quickly? Um, And also, what do you think about these companies who we as plant-based people, as people who care about the environment, animal welfare, uh, people's health, what do you think about these meat companies coming in and and starting to to fund some of these plant-based companies? Sure. So, so first of all, I'll talk about the shift that led to this. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Efforts in advocacy and education that started to be more thoughtful about how to approach consumers, things like Meatless Mondays and uh, using the phrase plant-based to make people feel less threatened by the idea that they have to adopt an entire political identity. I'm vegan. I'm proud of being vegan. I've been vegan for 16 years. I have no intention of changing that. And I do see it 
as a holistic lifestyle that I'm bought into entirely, and I hope others embrace it. But for many consumers, that is one step removed from where they are now. And so meeting them where they're at and helping them engage in just trying a new thing, try soy milk instead of milk. Have you ever thought about trying this? You know, engaging with it at the pace that they're ready with, what they'll find is that it's so easy and delicious and that they're trying so many new foods and eating so much better and feeling so much better that they're going to be more open to taking those additional steps. With campaigns like Meatless Mondays and others like that, we have seen a huge shift in consumer adoption of this thinking. And so 10 years ago, the market, uh, the percentage of Americans who were vegan was about 1%. Today, different polls would say it's between 15 and 3%. That's a substantial growth. It's anywhere from 50% to 300% growth over 10 years, which is pretty extraordinary. But it doesn't even, it pales in comparison to what we're seeing in folks who are moving in this direction. So a few years ago, 5% of the country was vegetarian. Now it's 7%. But where you're seeing a real difference is in the flexitarian market. So if you take a definition of flexitarian like Mintel, the large market research firm does, of people who eat vegetarian for more than half their meals, so they're primarily vegetarian, not entirely, for those folks in 2007, 6% of the population was flexitarian by that definition. In 2013, 16.7% of the population was vegetarian, was flexitarian. That's continuing to grow. And so... In just 10 years, we maybe doubled the vegan population, but we nearly tripled the percentage of people who were flexitarian, and that demand is huge. The number of people who were saying they were actively trying to reduce meat, depending on the survey, it's between 40 and 60% of the American population. So when people in the business side, business uh, say to me, oh, well, but the population of vegans or vegetarians is so small, why should I add those vegetarian options to my restaurant or have those in my store? I always laugh because I say, first of all, there's a great, great quote from the president of the National Restaurant Association, Don Sweeney, where she said, anybody who doesn't have plant-based options on their menus is literally burning money. Everyone knows that vegan dictate where you, where you go. And it's true, right? Everybody knows somebody with a dietary restriction. And I, I liken it to if a parent had a child with a peanut allergy and they looked up a menu for a restaurant online and every single dish had peanut oil in it, they wouldn't go there. Not only would they not go there, they would not take their entire family. And that means that restaurant might be losing 200 bucks that night. But also, the restaurant would never know that they lost that business because they're not going to go and say to them, by the way, I didn't come here. They're going to look at the next website the next website for another restaurant and go there instead. And so it's a similar thing. Uh, the size of the population that's looking for these options is huge and everybody's starting to catch on to that. And so with consumer demand outpacing the options that were out there, investors started to see the opportunity to meet that demand by investing in companies that were coming up with the greatest new products. And market share started being lost by the big companies and everybody started seeing it and realizing they'd be left behind if they didn't jump on the bandwagon. Now to answer your question about the big food companies, many of which are heavily involved in meat moving in this direction. I am a big believer that we need to put ourselves in the animal shoes first. And what that means is that while in a perfect world, we'd like everything to be vegan. And I look forward to that future. I believe in it. I like look forward to seeing it. I hope I see it in my lifetime. The pace at which that happens is accelerated if we open ourselves up to collaboration. And that means that we accept that sometimes larger food companies 
have bigger budgets, have distribution relationships and efficiencies that small companies can't always have. And if they see the demand in this market growing and they're losing demand in the animal products they're selling, the greatest example is dairy, right? The example I'll give is Horizons, um, which was owned by a company called Dean Foods. Dean Foods acquired Silk, which was a large non-dairy company. And Dean Foods was a huge dairy company. As demand for non-dairy grew so quickly for fluid milk, and as demand for milk itself plummeted, and it continues to plummet, Dean Foods started losing so much profit, and Silk was growing so quickly that they actually spun themselves off and kept Silk alive because it was doing better than they were, and they became primarily a non-dairy company. Then they acquired So Delicious, and they invested heavily in that, and it became White Wave Foods. White Wave Foods ended up selling to Danan, or Danon as Americans call it, for a ton of money. And it is now largely plant-based. It owns Vega. It owns Earthbound Farms, the produce company. It owns Silk and So Delicious. And so you're seeing they saw the demand growing so quickly that they were like, wait a second. Yeah, we were a milk company, but we are now going to stop putting so much money, if, if any, into the dairy industry and shift that to the plant-based industry. So how does that cow feel when... Milk is not selling and non-dairy milk is. If we had to work with a what was once a dairy company to save those cows, to save those carbon emissions, and to protect people from the chronic bronchitis and all the issues that come from dairy consumption, it was worth it because we saved those animals. We made that difference. And I don't think all the people who work in those companies are bad people. Those companies started because they wanted to feed people affordably. Did they make all the right decisions at all the right times? No. Have some been aware that they were probably making wrong decisions? Probably, but a lot of people weren't thinking that way. And so even if they were at one point, many of them have come to realize that they see their parents you know, dying of heart disease. They see themselves getting older and suffering those things. They don't want to be part of that. And so I meet people every day at the large food companies who are going vegan, who are wanting to be part of this future themselves. And I have people all the time saying to me, how are you making a living doing this? I've been stuck in this job because I didn't think there was a way to do that. And so many people are leaving those big food companies, but within those big food companies, there are people also trying to make a difference. Two years ago, I was at a small conference and uh, on food innovation by a group called Alpha Food Labs out of New York. And there was a room about probably a couple hundred people. The organizers asked everybody to go around and say who they were, where they were from, and what they thought the future of food was. And right next to me, I didn't know the guy, he says... My name is John Nash. Uh, until two months ago, I was the head of poultry and, uh, of chicken and turkey for Cargill. I'm now the head of protein, and the future of food is plant-based protein. And I almost fell over. Cargill realizes that the future of food is plant-based protein, and they've already recognized that they are not a meat company. They are a protein company, and that meeting that nutritional need does not need to rely on meat. And so they are shifting aggressively in that direction, as is Tyson, as is Maple Farms in Canada that acquired Field Roast and Light Life. We're seeing that shift, and their resources can do so much for the cause. Couldn't have said it better myself. No, I agree. I mean, the collaboration point is is key on so many levels. You've You've gone through them. You've touched on all of them. And it's only going to help those companies get their product uh, in, you know, in more shopping centers, in more restaurants, on more plates at the end of the day, uh, giving people the opportunity at the right price point to, uh, to try these foods. 
So I will, I will say, if I may add one thing to yeah. that, for those who are concerned that those large companies will mess with the values and formula of those products, there is a risk of that. The major risk of that is that while making products more efficient and they're more, therefore more affordable allows it to reach more people with accessible, affordable, delicious, healthy vegan food, it also means that they're cutting costs. And sometimes cutting costs means cheapening ingredients and using lesser quality or using worse labor practices or all these kinds of things. And so there is a risk of that. The, the way to prevent that is that a brand and the consumers that love it must work to build such value around the very values those companies stand for that if they are acquired, they are acquired and recognized for that differentiation and the acquiring company has no interest in messing with the messing with the soup. And the example I give of that is Tom's of Maine. When Colgate Palmolive, a company that makes a lot of pretty toxic animal-tested chemical products, bought Tom's of Maine, they didn't say, let's start animal testing, let's start putting in all kinds of junk in it. If you look at the back of the Tom's of Maine package, it's still all post-consumer recycled plastic. They still All the employees are still required to donate a ton of time to charity. Um, they still use no animal testing and no animal sourced ingredients, no artificial this, that, no chemical. And it's because Colgate recognized there is a significant segment of the market that is not buying Colgate-type products because they don't want those things. And so there is such trust built with that brand. We're buying that because we want to reach those consumers and offer them something and help them reach it, not because we want to try to lose those consumers because we've already lost them. For us to try to change their success to reach the consumers they have would make us lose the thing we already are trying to gain back. So how can we as consumers help those brands prove to the bigger companies that we want them for what they are bringing to the table in values and protect those values as they scale. Awesome. Yeah. No, I, I mean, for the, for the most part, I feel like, like I think Dyer, for example, you could probably shed some more light on this. I think they have, they've recently been acquired and changed their recipe. Is that true? They were acquired by a company called Otsuka, which is a Japanese publicly traded company known for pharmaceuticals, though they have many divisions, including food. Uh, they have made some changes to their formulations. I haven't yet gotten a sense of whether those changes were good or bad. I mean, some were actually not just about cost cutting. I've seen some improvements in formulations to make them more delicious and to make them uh, have better benefits. Um, it's possible they'll also make changes that we won't be thrilled about, and that's par for the course and even companies that don't get acquired sometimes make those changes i I don't want to say that it's you know going the right direction or not but i haven't seen anything yet that terrified me that really upset me um uh, i have seen some positives i hope it stays that way i think it's on us to show otsuka that day is great for the non-dairy company it is and to keep supporting the values they were founded with the reason i brought it up was because previous we think anna and i think previous to this recipe change, it had a distinct, distinct taste all, all across their, their different products. Not going to diss the product. I still ate it. It melts well. It's, you know, it's a cheesy um, texture, all that kind of stuff. Really enjoyed it. Anna, however, she didn't love that distinct diet taste. So, I don't know. It must have been months and months down the track and we bought you know like some shredded diet cheese to put on a pizza and she finished it 
And I don't think I told her it was dire. And I put it on the pizza and afterwards she hadn't complained like, oh, you bought dire, you know. And I was like, what do you think? And she's like, oh, it was really good. What cheese did you get? I'm like, oh, it was like some dire like, you know, pepper jack or whatever it was. And she's like, really? It tasted different. So that's an example I wanted to give because I think if that is in fact true, it's a positive change on the on the palate. It's still that plant-based cheese alternative, but they're getting better because of an acquisition, because of, you know, something that they've changed within the recipe. I mean, look, those large companies don't just have money and trucks to distribute everywhere and relationships with the big restaurants and supermarkets. They all have, also have huge teams with collectively thousands of years of experience in food science, in culinary expertise, in how to make things taste the best they can. And so they can apply those strengths to making products even better. And that's a real benefit. Um, Otsuka specifically decided to get involved in Dea because they recognized the opportunity of this market. And they said when they acquired them in a press release that they were looking to expand, to, to launch into plant-based and expand in that realm. They thought they could bring some benefit to the products, but they also said that there was technology and know-how in Daya that they wanted to acquire so that they could do other things like it because they knew they didn't know how to do it all. And so that collaboration, bringing together the IP and the experience that Daya had with the team that Otsuka has can be tremendously valuable. And, you know, selling to a large company is not for everybody. The two books I highly recommend to think through the pros and cons of that area is one is called uh, Mission in a Bottle by Seth Goldman, the founder of Honest Tea, who is now the chairman of Beyond Meat. And the other is called Raising the Bar. And it's by Gary Erickson, who founded Cliff Bar. Um, Seth was known for having founded Honest Tea as one of the most values-driven companies in the world. And when he sold to Coca-Cola, consumers flipped on him, at least the small voice you know, of consumers who were very passionate about certain things. And he was able to show, not only through his book, but in his talks, that not only had he not sold out and lost the values of the company, he was able to leverage the de demand and excitement that Honest Tea had generated among consumers to convince Coca-Cola as part of the sale that they had to make changes in their other products. And so he got them to commit to reducing their GMOs across the board, moving towards plant-based plastics, reducing their sugar. So what you're seeing is Coca-Cola across the board has made huge strides. Are they perfect? No. But he was his products were so exciting that he was able to convince that Goliath to make the right changes. And that's amazing. With um, People realize now what power we hold the plant-based movement punches in at a higher weight class than we weigh in at, and how can we benefit from that? And how can we help others recognize that? On the other side, Gary Erickson decided not to sell Cliff Bar. His story is incredible. And he did, his, did it because he did realize that the company he was thinking of selling to, he did not feel they aligned with their values. He did not feel they'd protect the jobs of his employees and stick to, this, to, stick to his guns. He decided not to sell, and everybody thought he was nuts because they thought he had grown the brand as large as he could and thought he was walking away from a huge opportunity. And he went into a massive amount of debt to buy out his business partner who disagreed with his decision not to sell. And so he went back to startup mode. He was in a huge amount of debt. He had to you know, basically start the company from scratch. Within two years, they launched Kitbar and Lunabar. And today, Cliff Bar is, and it's all of its brands underneath it, 
is so much larger and more successful than they ever thought they could be because of his tenacity and his passion and his sticking to his guns and keeping to his word with his employees and everything else. And I have tremendous respect for that. Um, so it's not, you know, neither choice is right or wrong in every decision, but I think it, we need to recognize that it's not black or white and not judge people for that decision. Really, we need to think about what's right, what's most impactful and how we can make the best decision for the cause and for ourselves. Very well said. So what are the two books again? Just repeat those. So Gary Erickson wrote Raising the Bar and Seth Goldman's Mission in a Bottle. Awesome. I think I'll definitely grab both of those. Definitely got my attention there for two interesting sides of the, the story. I want to bring up a more, um, a more recent kind of news event uh, in Missouri, I believe, where they've now... I'm not sure if it's passed and if it's in effect, you might be able to shed more light on it, but we're talking about not being able to call plant-based meats meat. Um, there's all, you know, there's been discussion around this for a while. I know with, with milks and cheeses and not being able to call almond milk milk, um, not being able to call a plant-based cheese cheese because of the properties within it, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think this is going to pose a challenge for, for companies that you work with? Or do you think that, you know, the demand is just growing, the knowledge of the products is growing at a rate that far, you know, outweighs the, the problem that they're faced with? What do, you, what do you think about this? I think it's unfortunate, but I also think it's a losing battle on the other side. Um, you know, the old saying, first they ignore you, then they fear you, then you win. Then they fear you, then they fight you, then you win. And the day I knew that non-dairy milk was going to win was four or five years ago. The Dairy Council in the States launched an ad campaign where a young child is crying from a nightmare. His mom takes him downstairs to get him a glass of milk. She opens the fridge. She pulls out a carton of what says non-dairy milk in big letters on it. She starts shaking it because sometimes you want to shake to you know mix up the almonds or whatever. And as she's shaking it, the child starts to think that she looks like a monster. She's getting really scary. She's shaking it so aggressively that she's getting really scary. And, you know, it was a joke on the fact that I don't even know what. They were implying that non-dairy milk was scary. And it was so ludicrous that I knew that the fact that the dairy council that was so large and had so many billions of dollars was taking the time, rather than ignore the non-dairy industry, to try to put it down, said to me, they're paying attention to us because they have to. And that's a sign. The fact that the dairy and meat industry today, those that are still behind and not realizing that um, they need to make a shift and that this is where the future is, are trying to prevent this change is um, slightly humorous to me. It's unfortunate because it will cause more consumer confusion despite what they're claiming and um, dishonesty because, frankly, not only do consumers recognize that non-dairy milk is not milk from a cow – uh, it's also not how those words were originally created. Milk and meat did not originally mean animal protein. Um, you know, meat originally meant a significant piece of, of food. Um, and if you look at the old Oxford English Dictionary, that's what it stood for. It has since been, since been changed. Um, but when these statements were created, when these, when the, what are called standards of identity, the legal definitions of these words were created in mid 20th century in the States, they were done at the urging of those industries. And they were done based on a very narrow Anglo-Western view of what those foods were. 
The reality is non-dairy cheeses, milks, and meats have existed in this world for thousands of years, particularly in the Far East. And we chose to look at how we perceive those foods in the States from a very narrow point of view, and that's unfortunate. But much like trying to reverse gay marriage or something today, I think it's a losing battle. I think that we're seeing more and more folks in the animal industries recognize that what they were founded for was to serve people affordable, high-protein foods that could uh, nourish people. And if they step back and remember that, they can see that meat is not why they were founded. It is. It was the tool they used to accomplish that goal. But if they're really thinking about how, how to accomplish that goal now that they understand not only what consumers want, but also what's most effective and cost-efficient for them, they will make the shift like some are already doing, and that will be a losing battle. There are cracks and fissures in the community, and some are getting scared by that, but you know, at some point they're going to have to choose to get on the bandwagon or they're going to lose. And um, I don't want them to lose. I want them to get on the right side of history. Um, some will, some won't. Exactly. And you know, I think there'll be a real opportunity for those who are recognizing the opportunity to invest in the booming industry that is coming up around plant proteins. You know, there's a company in, uh, in Canada called Roquette. They're investing millions of dollars in sourcing and farming the uh, a ton of varieties of peas to determine which ones are the best for pea protein to make into meat and dairy alternatives. That company did not start as an ingredient company for the plant-based community, but they recognize the opportunity and they're making a killing on this and they're investing a lot of money to accomplish it. So I think there's a real opportunity. I have fashioned my last 10 years or so or in the years since I started plant-based solutions around showing the business case for this industry and it couldn't be easier now. No, the the message speaks for itself. I think there's enough awareness out there that you know even your you know flexitarian people that aren't as frequent in choosing these options, they're still just drawn towards them time and time again. All you got to do is walk into a Whole Foods supermarket, go straight to the Beyond Meat section, and if you can get your hands on it, you're in luck because they are selling out week after week after week those guys are so popular and not just the whole foods walmart has veggie burgers white castle is selling the impossible burger it is a new world and just yesterday there was an article about how the mcvegan burger could not stay stocked in any stores in any restaurants where they're selling it so the demand is there people are getting it and we just need to keep going so let's talk about maybe a, an area in the animal agriculture world that isn't getting anywhere near enough attention because I think you're nodding your head. You know exactly where I'm going with this. The oceans are, they are just in a dire state and we're not, we are nowhere near where we need to be. People are, and this, this is honestly the most horrific stat that gets thrown out. Fishless oceans by 2048. That is horrific. I don't think we understand the consequences of this. This basically means dead oceans, no life. And the ocean takes up such a large portion of this earth uh, that that scares the hell out of me. And I know you're doing something about it. Um, so do you want to just talk a little bit about maybe the the you know the huge huge industry that is the industrial fishing industry and then what you're 
you know, your other company has been doing to, to work on this. Absolutely. I'm so proud to be part of the community that is uh, working on this issue because I think it's a massive one to your point. Every year in the U.S., 10, roughly 10 billion land animals are killed for food. And many people would assume that that is the largest number of animals of any industry. The reality is in the U.S., 50 billion animals from the sea are killed for food just for consumption in the U.S. And the, and the rate at which we consume fish is much lower than in other countries. So why is that? Well, there are two reasons. There is wild fishing and there's aquaculture. In wild fishing, the tools that are used to fish involve not only catching the fish that we are targeting, but also many, many millions, if not more, billions of other animals, fish and marine mammals, that are not intended for consumption, at least not at that point. And because of restrictions, they're not allowed to fish them because they're endangered or because of whatever reason, because they have quotas for what they're supposed to fish. And so they throw them back. So we are killing many multitudes more animals than we are actually even going to consume. And it's causing, as you said, dead zones. Furthermore, many of those wild harvesting, it's a funny word to say slaughter methods or catching methods, um, many of those wild harvesting methods involve damaging not only bycatch, you know, dolphins, turtles, whatever it may be, but also destroying the ecosystem on which they rely on. So, for example, shrimp are primarily harvested using um, using bottom trawlers, they're called. They are these metal nets of sorts that scrape the bottom of the ocean floor and dig up everything there, ripping up coral, destroying all the seabeds that house millions of inhabitants and that act perhaps most importantly, as carbon sinks. What people don't realize is that more than 50% of the carbon in our world, more than 50% is stored in the oceans. So imagine when we're clear-cutting forests, we know what that does. Now imagine that we're clear-cutting the corals that house millions of species, just like a rainforest. More species of animals live in the oceans than on the land. More carbon is stored there. And so when we're destroying the oceans, we're destroying our very survival. And people don't talk about it enough. I think first and foremost, because it's harder to quantify, we haven't been able to define or calculate how much that is doing to the environment or how much carbon is released, or it's harder to calculate how many fish are killed because there's so much illegal fishing and so much is thrown back. And they get thrown in under a name rather than a number in the first place. So bycatch, who knows? No one's, no one's counting. That's correct. It's just a name given to the stuff that isn't what they're targeting. And the other reason is just like with any kinds of human discrimination or ignorance or um, fear or hatred of others, the first cause is difference and an inability to relate to another. And so when we see people who look different from us, we might be less able to relate to them or understand how similar they are to us and we are less able to empathize with them. Fish and other ocean species look less like us than animals who walk. And so we do not appreciate or understand how similar they are to us. For years, we've been living under the fallacy that, animal, that animals in the oceans are stupid or that they don't use tools or whatever. I always remember hearing, oh, only chimpanzees use tools. No, there's evidence that mother fish will use a leaf to scoop up food, swim over to their young, and feed it to them. That is using tools. Um, people think goldfish have short memories. It's complete crap. And so... They, they feel pain, they bleed just like we do, and they build very, very complex social circles and they're very intelligent. They actually have been shown to 
carry learning across generations. So you can find that one fish will be exposed to one kind of danger. And if they're young who were not alive yet have never seen that, they will still know to avoid it because that information was transmitted. That is a pretty extraordinary thing. And it's something that we don't attribute to animals very often. And so for all these reasons, we are not recognizing the threat that wild fishing is causing. The solution that has presented by some has been fishing uh, fish farms, aquaculture, which are primarily tanks within the oceans where they have these barriers, but actually the water passes through from inside and outside to the oceans. And these animals are trapped in crazy condensed areas with huge density, just like you see on factory farms and battery cages and everything else. Disease is rampant, just like on factory farms. The animals are obviously suffering. There are huge rates of disease and death. And because of that, they are having to use antibiotics and pesticides and herbicides, which are actually leaching into the oceans and creating huge dead zones where other animals are dying and where you're losing the coral reefs, causing algae blooms, etc. The other thing that's happening is that more often than not, the way they feed those animals is by using wild fish. Just like it takes 10 pounds of grain to produce one pound of beef because the animals are burning calories as they're growing, fish do the same. And so there are fish for which they're using five pounds of fish from the wild to feed and grow one pound of fish that we eat. What that means is that what was supposedly a solution to reduce the number of animals that were killed in the oceans is actually actually accelerating it, not only through the spread of disease, but also through having to kill more fish in the wild to feed the fish in the land or in the in the aquaculture. And so, as you mentioned, Matt, in a National Geographic article a few years ago, they cited cited the largest study to date on the um, biodiversity loss and species extinction in the oceans, which found that. At the rate we are currently going, by 2048, only 30 years from today, many of us will be alive then, there will be zero commercial fish species of any kind left in the oceans. We recognize that losing one keystone species on land, bees or so many others, will wreck our worlds. Now imagine that more than half of the species on the planet will be lost in 30 years because of what we're doing. It is a serious catastrophe. We need to wake up to it and we need to do something about it. And it will take not only education, but also finding solutions. So what do we do? Um, about five years ago, a gentleman named James Corwell, who's a real world-renowned chef, an incredible man, incredible human being, and an incredible chef, was visiting Japan. And he went to a market called Tsukiji in Tokyo. It's the world's largest fish market. It's about two football fields long. And they are famous or infamous for their daily tuna auctions, where every single day they auction off 2,000 metric tons or 4 million pounds of tuna. Every single day. Let's stop for a second. Every single... Well, weekdays only. (laughs) And this is part of the problem, what you were saying before. We're almost unable to compute these numbers so we kind of just hear the number that precedes the word trillion and don't really think too much more of it you might hear 19 20 30 oh yeah no there is a real trillion on the end of those things but you know in this case four million pounds every single day and every single one of those animals is a feeling sentient being 
And every single one of those animals is taken away from our oceans, causing getting us closer to extinction of those species. Many of those species are nearly extinct. We're talking about bluefin tuna and yellowfin tuna and others that are extraordinarily endangered. And where catching them involves killing dolphins and turtles and many endangered sharks and everything else. The problem is astronomical. And so Chef Corwell was not somebody who had traditionally been exposed to or thought about these issues. But when he saw the massive scale of this carnage, he said, how can the oceans keep up? And he realized they just can't. And so while continuing to work in the industry, he came to the realization that he wanted to dedicate his life to solving this problem. And over a number of years, using his culinary mastery, he figured out how to create the taste and texture of extremely high-end delicious raw tuna using the humble tomato. How? Well, he knew that tomatoes were high in something called glutamic acid, which is the compound that is responsible for the umami flavor. In East Asian cultures, they, they think of umami very strongly. It is considered the fifth taste. You've got sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and umami. umami. Umami is earthy. It's savory. We'd call it savory, but it's a little different. But that's the closest comparison we have in Western culture. So mushrooms are umami and fish is umami. And they're so rich in that that tomatoes were actually the originally source of how the Chinese isolated MSG, monosodium glutamate, back in the day. He knew that. And so he realized that just like rice, seaweed, and fish that are used in sushi, um, tomatoes are high in glutamic acid. And so if he could isolate and enhance that flavor and create that fatty, chewy, meaty texture of tuna, he could create an extraordinary product. He did it. Um, I had the privilege of meeting him a few years ago. I'd had the great privilege before of working on releasing some of the greatest meat and dairy alternatives and poultry alternatives in the market but nobody was really working on seafood. And knowing the scale and knowing that my personal journey was started by relating to and loving and fearing for the experience of animals from the sea, I was really moved by what he was doing and was uh, so grateful that he gave me the opportunity and my agency the opportunity to partner with him to bring this product to market. So Ocean Hugger Foods, as we're called, launched in November 2017 with our tomato-based raw tuna called ahimi, which means, me means the spirit of and ahi for tuna. And ahimi is available throughout the U.S. and Canada in restaurants, college and corporate cafeterias, and in the sushi bars of Whole Foods. And we'll be launching in Asia and Europe in 2019. We're also launching our second product called Unami, the spirit of eel, made from eggplants in just a couple short months this fall of 2018. And we'll be scaling that very quickly Freshwater eel that are used for unagi, the sushi product, or for other eel products, are among the most endangered species, just like bluefin and yellowfin tuna. In fact, the, they farm them, but the only way they can farm them, they can't farm them from birth. And so they have to take the young eel from the oceans and then put them, or from the, from the rivers or where, you know, the freshwater eels. So from the water where they're grown or they're born, and then bring them to the farms. What that means is that they're capturing the newest generation and never allowing them to grow and to spawn more. And so it's much quicker path to extinction because if you're not letting them get to reproductive age, there will be no more after them. And so we're, we're very proud to be launching that product to address that issue. We have many more products to come, including smoked and raw salmon alternatives from carrots and much more. And so uh, it's an incredible company that I'm really proud to be part of. 
We were honored recently by being by receiving the award from Whole Foods for the most innovative product of the year. Uh, and we are growing very quickly. We've received a ton of attention and really great response from the community. And we're just so excited about being able to address this global crisis in a way that is exciting and that meets so many needs. You know, the product solves the problem for pregnant women and those who can't eat mercury or don't want to because none of us should. Uh, those who are concerned about sustainability, those with allergies, vegetarians and vegans. It's endless. Um, it's amazing where it can go. You know, we're even talking to hospitals who are getting more and more demand for ethnic foods and high-end culinary foods and new flavors, but they can't serve raw fish there. People will die. And so this is the kind of product that could solve that issue. We don't have the issue of salmonella and all kinds of issues. So it's a really exciting product line. Um, we'd love for you to check it out if you're listening to this. And uh, yeah. I can say firsthand it's delicious. I've definitely tried it. Whole Foods sushi bar section. Um and it's also available in many other applications where you'd see raw tuna. So it's not just in sushi. It's in poke restaurants. It's served as tartare, even at a Michelin-starred restaurant. We see it in ceviche and crudo, anytime you'd use raw tuna. And that's true for all of our products. They have many applications. The texture of the tomato and even the way it looks is incredible. Like, the sh- was it Chef? Corwell. Corwell. Done a phenomenal job. It is... He has. Really a top-end product, and yeah. What's amazing about it also is that the so our, our intellectual property is based on being able to eliminate the conflicting flavors of the vegetables we use. So we get rid of the acidity in the tomato or the sweetness in the carrot or the bitterness in eggplant while creating that firm, fatty texture. And we can then layer any flavor we want on top. So most people assume that to make a product that tastes so much like meat or fish or something, you have to use a lot of chemicals and all kinds of stuff. Our tech, our intellectual property, we joke that it's not technology, it's technique because it's years of culinary mastery that led to this. The entire process of our product uses two ingredients, tomatoes and water. At the very end, we can flavor it. We can add soy sauce if we want it to taste Japanese. We can add lime juice if we want it to taste Latin for ceviche. But the technology is a mechanical process we developed over years that literally just uses one vegetable in water and creates that firm, fatty texture and gets rid of that original flavor for, for us to build whatever we want onto it. It's so exciting to see something that is so clean ingre- has such clean ingredients and is so wholesome and healthy uh, that creates that awesome experience for consumers. Super exciting. Super exciting on many levels. What you're doing in there. Yeah, guys, if you are listening and you are in... North America, definitely check it out. It is it is phenomenal product. So what do you think of other products coming to market, trying to solve the same issue? Historically, what we're, you know, I did a lot of business stuff at school and, you know, we learn a lot about competition and, you know, how to fight competition, this, this type of stuff. We're in a little bit of a, a different kind of space, I suppose, because there is some kind of ethical attachment to what we're doing. And to say no to someone else, or not no, but like to to fight against someone else coming up with a, a similar product or a, they're kind of getting into the same niches as you are, what do you think of, of this? Is it a, a conflict of interest or are you supportive? What, where do you stand? I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm going to tell a story that really 
defined how I think about these issues and that I think defines how we all do in this community. A few years ago, I was working with a non-dairy cheese company. I won't mention which one. It wasn't one that I mentioned so far on the podcast, but I was working with a fantastic non-dairy cheese company. Very proud to work with them. And another entrepreneur came to me and they were launching a non-dairy cheese company with similar ingredients and they were known for having made these on their own time and, you know, for their friends and family and they were supposed to be extraordinary. And that person approached me and said, we'd love you to help us launch this product. And I was flattered, but I said, thank you so much. I don't think it'd be appropriate. I think it'd be a conflict of interest because I'm working with this other company, but I'm really flattered. Love what you're doing. Go, go do it. You know, we need more awesome vegan cheeses and it'll have such a great impact. A few days later, I was speaking to the founder and CEO of the company that I had been already working with. And I said to him, I said, just so you know, I was approached by this person. They're going to be launching some vegan cheeses. They're supposed to be extraordinary. They asked me to work with them, but don't worry. I said no, because while I'm excited for them, excited for what it will do, I'm committed to the commitment I've made to you. And he said to me, David, is she working to save cows? I said, yeah. He said, you better work with her. I said, well, what about us? He said, this won't change anything. We're in it for the same reasons. And it was brilliant. And I think it's exactly how so many of the entrepreneurs think in this space. Um, I love that about this space. We are in it for the mission. And by all means, the demand is outpacing the company's products that are coming out at such a pace. We need more. And the more good products are out there, the more we'll have to continue to innovate to make them better and better and the better more we'll all win. And we can show to consumers that we can meet those experiences they're seeking by making more better products every day. And so we'll gain more shelf space, take more market share by meeting more needs with different consumers, uh, with, different with different products. So I'm thrilled when new products come out. By all means, please launch seafood alternative products. Please launch dairy and meat alternative products. Please find your place in this space, whether as an investor, whether as an entrepreneur, whether as a service provider, like what I do with plant-based solutions, whether as an advocate. We need so many people at the table and it will take all of us figuring out how we can apply our skills best, like you're doing with this podcast, to make a difference. And uh, people should check out the movement of effective altruism and understand that we each have a role and our skills and interests can be applied to make a difference. That's definitely one thing I knew you'd gotten into. We might have to save it for a, another time. Uh, there is one last question I want to I want to give. It's you know it's I'm sure it's an easy one for you. But what do you think? You know, out of all of the different products, the different movements within our one movement, what excites you the most in this plant-based vegan world? We can keep it to food if you like. That's where, you know, you're living in at the moment. But is there a certain product that has really piqued your attention and you're excited by? So, maybe first of all, Maybe bar Ahimi. Well, I'll, well, I'll speak to that for, for a second. Yeah. So, first of all, I should say I'm a massive foodie. Um, you know, contrary to the popular belief, most vegans I know love food and love to eat. And so, I'm like that. And nothing excites me more than all of the new products. And I'm constantly wanting to try the new things. That's why I love uh, events like Natural Products Expo because it's just a smorgasbord of new products. And it's extraordinary to see them even before they're in stores. Um, so, I don't know that I have one. Um, that said, I will mention Ocean Hunger Foods, even though it sounds like I have a bias and a conflict of interest, and I'll tell you why. 
I think the case that I can make that I am not just being uh, self-interested in speaking about the company that I'm a part owner in and I'm working on day to day is because working in that company and on that company required me to spend two plus years of my time not making any money because we were a startup that had no money. We hadn't raised much money. We had no money ourselves. And so Jimmy, Chef Corwell, and I dedicated our time to it for free to get it off the ground. What that meant, and I also dedicated my entire agency's team, agency team to it. What that meant was that the money that I took home for those two and a half years and the money that my agency made collectively and the money that James made was significantly less than we had because we believed in it so much. And so it's not that I want you to go out and buy it and make us more money. I'd love that. But the reality is I am so proud of it. And the proof is I've worked on 50 companies in this space. I've been proud of every single one. I only work with products that I can stand behind. But this one was so great that even at a time when I wasn't making that much money, I was like, you know what? This is a risk I'm willing to take because I'm so excited and committed by the impact this can have, by the incredible talents of this chef and what he can bring to the table. And I want to be part of it. So I, I will mention that one. Again. Hell yeah. Uh, I, can't say, I can't say no to that answer. That's perfectly said. Yep. <laughs> Are there any other ones? So many. Um, you know, just today I tried a new vegan cheese. I can't even remember what the brand was, but it was unbelievably melty. <laughs> um, there are so many things that are coming out. It's even hard to, to put it together. Uh, and, and, it, and it goes across the board. I'm excited about the fashion innovation. I'm wearing some really sick shoes today from uh, Brave Gentlemen uh, that are really, really beautiful. I've had for three years, and they're still in incredible shape and feel and look like leather. Uh, nobody's ever told me they look like rubber or whatever, you know, they're, they're incredibly comfortable. So I'm excited about the innovations in fashion, in food, just across the spectrum. And I want everybody to get in this space. I also want people to think about where they can have the greatest impact and be most effective, even if it's not tomorrow. And so while I hope people do launch new companies tomorrow, I also hope some people will think, what are the skills that I need to attain to make myself most effective and to increase the chances that I will succeed in those companies? And if that means learning the ropes under somebody else for a little bit or studying a certain field or working for somebody else in the field such that when you do your own thing, it'll be more likely to succeed and have the greatest impact, I think that's a worthwhile consideration. I meet a lot of people who don't have resources of their own and don't have a background in any of the things that go into food businesses and they want to start a food company. And for some, that's a great idea. Um, for some, it might be a great idea down the road. So just consider that there are a lot of implications and, and there are a lot of moving parts in food companies. Um, we learn it every day when you're producing, moving, distributing, marketing, selling, and branding food. It's a lot going into it. And so, um, you know, I hope you'll find people who are working in this space who are doing fantastic things and learn from them. And for many of you, I hope you will go out and start companies because we need you. Perfect, man. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation tonight. I really appreciate your time. Enjoy the rest of Expo East. I'm sure you've got a big day ahead of you tomorrow. Good luck on the Ocean Hugger journey. I can't wait to try this new eggplant product for the, um, the how do you pronounce it? Unami. Unami. Looking forward to that. And yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll catch up again at some point, probably in New York City. And uh, yeah, until then, thanks very much, man. Thank you so much, Matt, for having me. It's been a true privilege. 
And thank you for what you're doing for the movement by spreading the word. Uh, I'd also like to share if anybody is looking to get more information about how my agency may be able to help them, you can find us at plantbasedsolutions.com. Even if you just want to learn about how one would go about launching a company in the industry, we'd love to have a chat and just give you some of the information on the space and how we or somebody else might help you or how you might approach doing it. Uh, and if you want to learn more about Ocean Hugger and find that product, you can go to our website, oceanhuggerfoods.com. And we have a store locator in there. You stick in your zip code and you can find out when it's uh, where it is near you. Perfect. Perfect. Go out. Try these products. They are delicious. Uh, and as we heard today, you know, they are really helping some, uh, some causes that are in, in great need of acceleration. So get in there, try these products, reach out to David. I'm sure he'd, he'd love to chat with you. Uh, but yeah, guys, hope you enjoyed it. And David, thanks once again. Thank you. Hey, guys. So glad you tuned in today. David is doing an incredible job helping many vegan businesses whilst also running one of his own. If you're interested in learning more about him and also his new product, Ahimi, the tomato-based tuna product, head on over to oceanhuggerfoods.com and also his other website, plantbasedsolutions.com. As always, I'd love to hear from you myself. If you do have any questions from today's podcast or any of the previous episodes, please contact me on Instagram at VegTalk. That's V-E-D-G-E-T-A-L-K. I'd also really appreciate any reviews and ratings if you do have some spare time following this episode. It's been so amazing to see the podcast grow week by week. And I do thank you for all your help sharing episodes on social media. I'll talk to you next week, guys. Thank you.